0: Acts chapter 2, this will be part 2, Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other languages as the Spirit gave them utterances. Pentecostal experience. The Charismatic will say, this is the evidence that you've been filled with the Holy Spirit that you speak in tongues, as they call it, heavenly language. Well, in this context, it's very clear what was spoken was a known language where these people were from. And it was this instantaneous gift that they spoke. Now, the gift to speaking in tongues, Paul said, would cease over in the 12th chapter of First Corinthians. It was that instantaneous gift. And again, I've turned the wrong chapter. I mean, the 13th chapter. 13th chapter of First Corinthians, verse 8 says, Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. And the word prophecies here is, of course, talking about the Old Testament gift of prophesying. And he says that they shall come, and the word here for fail means that they shall come to an end. Not that the prophecies would fail, but they, that gift would come to an end. Where there be tongues, they shall cease. This is a different word than the word fail, Greek word, and it means to stop, abruptly stop. Where there be knowledge, it shall vanish. And this word means something like a vapor, to kind of a facade, because God gave knowledge like the apostles, infallible knowledge. But that was passing because the Word of God was coming into existence. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. Now, there are various ideas about what that verse... i well, I read verse 9. For we know in part... And we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, and the word perfect means complete, then that which is in part shall be done away. Well, go over with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 1, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things by whom he hath made the world. Well, this text right here would would explain what Paul has just said there in Corinthians. The word, the phrase, at sundry times means in many parts and in many different ways. The old economy, Old Testament days, God spake sometimes by verbal means, speaking audibly in a voice. Sometimes he came upon pe- men and they spake. Peter says that the, men, the holy men of old spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Sometimes he gave dreams and visions, different ways, but not in this economy, not in this day. Why? Because we have the revealed Word of God here, given to us by the Holy Spirit of God. And that which is perfect, or which that was complete, is the Word of God. And that which is perfect may, could very well refer, refer to Christ. No problem there. He is perfect, but he is the revealer, and he is the one that gave to us the New Testament. You say, well, now, wait a minute. Paul wrote most of the New Testament. Well, that's right. But it was by the authority of Christ who had prayed to the Father that the Holy Spirit would come upon men and that he would bring to remembrance things that I have taught you. And you remember when he ascended back, just before he ascended back, he said, teaching all nations to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And so what you have in the New Testament is the things that Christ set forth and has given to his churches to have by the hands of the apostles. Now, so then that which is perfect, the complete revelation which is in Christ, then that which is in part Old Testament will be done away with. And so New Testament prophecies, and New Te- I mean Old Testament prophecies, Old Testament, uh, and or New Testament, I'll get it right, Old Testament prophesying and New Testament tongues and was to be terminated uh, when the Word of God comes. Now back to Acts chapter 2. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and spake. Now, turn moment to the fourth chapter of acts verse 31 acts the fourth chapter here is another feeling instant when the church was filled when all the people were filled with the holy ghost and they peter and john had been released from prison and they come back and they report to the church what's all been happened. and uh, verse 29 now lord behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and spake the word of God with boldness. Now you'll note that they're filled, and it says the place was shaken. Now there's never been a charismatic movement wherein the building was shaken, unless it was out in California when the earthquake took place. And this is one of the things that they just ignore, you know, because they acknowledge that we don't have these earth-shaking experiences, literally. God manifested Himself here at this church, but the place been shaken literally. But the individuals, the important thing is the individuals were filled with the Holy Ghost. I've said, if we don't understand the difference between immersion, baptizing, and feeling, some people are going to get drowned in baptism. Because if you think that filling and baptizing are one and the same word, how then would you go about baptizing a person? You would fill them up with water and thereby drown them. There's a distinct difference between filling and immersion. Immersion, the object being immersed itself, does not become filled. It is plunged or it is immersed in a substance. Baptism, the Holy Spirit, the substance was a church, assembled church. They were immersed by Christ. He is the baptizer. He, they were immersed in the Holy Spirit. And so there always has to be any... So when people talk about being baptized by the Holy Spirit, they are talking about the Holy Spirit doing something. Now, there's a verse of Scripture in the 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians that they use as a proof text or what they want to say for, about this matter. 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Paul is writing in the 12th verse, the 12th chapter, whereas the body is one, hath many members, and all the members of that one body men many..." Are one body, so Christ. Now, hold right there, and in my Bible, go right across the page to verse 27. Verse 27, you read this. Now, ye are the body of Christ, and members in particular. Now, if that's the way it reads, is it doesn't mind, King James Bible, it is an error. Actually, because the definite article in the Greek is not there. Paul is not saying you are the body of Christ. He says you are a body of Christ. And each New Testament church is a body of Christ. Paul was writing to the book of, uh, writing the church at Corinth because there were divisions in, the, uh, in that church, very serious divisions, and he writes to correct those. And so he says in verse twelve, now as the body is one, have many members, and all the members of that one body being many and are one body. So Christ, each New Testament church is a is a, is the body of Christ. Verse thirteen, for in or by it's not really critical for what I'm about to say because I'll go on here, but I'll read it in. In one spirit are we all baptized into one body. Now keep your finger right there and turn over to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27. Philippians one twenty-seven. Only let your conversation or conduct be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast, and note this phrase, in one Spirit. Now, is the word Spirit capitalized there? No. Capitalization and punctuation were the subjects of translators, depending upon how they understood the context. And so, capitalization is not Holy Spirit inspired. It's not infallible. Nor is the punctuation infallible. It depends upon the interpreters, translators that did that that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Clearly understood that what Paul was talking about here is the unity of the church there. They have one mind, one spirit, striving together. Now back to First Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. For in one spirit are we all immersed into one body, whether Jew or Gentiles, whether bond or free, and have been made to drink into one spirit. Now, Someone says, and they try to teach that this is what happens when you're regenerated, that you are baptized into the body of Christ. Now may I read, ask, why it is that that interpretation is given there, and the reason why that interpretation is to justify and to defend a universal invisible church, which is contrary to the Scriptures, which is contrary to the meaning of the word church itself, which always refers to, a local called out assembly. And it is... Possibly two interpretations could be given to this verse of Scripture, and it is that Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he's telling them all that you were immersed into the body there at Corinth in one spirit, or even by one spirit. But whatever the case may be, when you were water baptized, you were immersed into the body at Corinth. Or, as some have said, and this holds weight also, he's referring to what happened at Pentecost. It makes no difference either way. Whatever What is important is, it is a verse of Scripture that is not exactly clear, taken out of context. Certainly, it's not clear. Secondly, no doctrine should be built upon a single verse of Scripture. But that's what they do with those who teach that we are baptized into the body of Christ, or into this universal invisible church, which is unscriptural, that we are immersed into this universal invisible church when we're regenerated. When you're regenerated, you're born in the kingdom of God. Nowhere does the Bible teach anything about us being baptized into a church. That is contrary to the Scriptures. You put on Christ when you are baptized by a visible manifested way. But you are not baptized into a church. Baptism is said by the old preachers. it say it was the door to the church by which when you are scripturally baptized, then you are in, invited to receive into the church congregation. There There two qualifications for membership in New Testament church. The first one, you have nothing to do with. You are passive, and that is regeneration. The Holy Spirit of God must regenerate you in order that you be a subject of the kingdom of God. Let the man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. The second thing, then, in order to be qualified to be a member of New Testament church, is you must have scriptural baptism. And that is, again, by immersion in water by an ordained minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we've talked about the core qualification for scriptural baptism, and that is for the right purpose, and that is for the right subject, that is in the right mode, and that is by proper authority. Well, <clears throat> those two things are essential to church membership. It's not an automatic thing. It is then that we do in obedience to Christ, we follow Christ. And so. We'll go back to Acts chapter two and see if that's just what the order here. In Acts chapter two, then, and Peter stands up and defends. And I'm not going to read all that happened there. And he, and they accuse him of being drunk, drunk with wine. In verse 22, you men of Israel, hear these words. Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you, by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you. As you also know, him being delivered by the determined counsel for the lives of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Peter points out to this congregation, this crowd, what's happened about Christ is by the determined counsel and will of God. God ordained this to happen, yet you are responsible here is the responsibility and accountability of men. Ye have taken with wicked hands of crucified. Indeed, the Bible teaches that God allows men to do wicked things. The wrath of men shall praise him, and the remainder of he shall restrain. But he is nowise the author of sin. Uh, Peter points that out very clearly here. You have taken and with wicked hands of crucified. And then he begins to defend and set forth the deity of Christ. And he shows, that, verse 25, David speaking concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. This is a quotation from Psalms uh, chapter uh, uh, 110 and from Psalms 16 also. He is at my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope because Thou will not leave my soul in hell. Now here is a basis upon which a false teaching has arisen, which is that Jesus Christ, when he was on the cross those three days and three nights, that he went to hell, uh, and the word here is hell, but the Greek word is Hades, and uh, it means, the Old Testament understanding, the teaching is the place of departed dead. It can mean into hell, as we understand hell, or it can simply mean in the grave. Jesus Christ did not go into hell. He had no business in hell, so to speak. Uh, in Peter, Peter talks about uh, well let's just go there for a minute please in second Peter I'm sorry, first Peter. First Peter chapter three and I'll start at verse eighteen in chapter three for Christ also have one suffered for sins and just the unjust that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also He went and preached on the Spirit in prison. Now that's the old apostolic creed so-called the apostolic creed. It's not the apostles did not adopt it. The apostles never wrote it. It's 300 years after the days of the apostles, and it is not inspired of God. It's, it's fallible. Uh, and so that's where they basically, he, by the Spirit, went in, preached souls in prison. But now note what he's talking about verse 20, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was preparing for it, few, that, were, uh, few, that is, eight souls were saved, by or in or out of water, the like figure of one to even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away the filth of flesh, but the answering of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, what answers a good what answers a good conscience to God? It's not our baptism; it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ which baptism figures. Now, what Paul was, what Peter here was talking about, is that God, Christ, preached in the days of Noah by the Holy Spirit to those who were in disobedience. And that's what he's talking about, that Noah, a preacher of righteousness, preached by the Spirit of God to those before, while the ark was preparing. And it's not that Christ went into hell. Now back to Acts chapter 2. I'll start at verse 27 again. Because thou will not leave my soul in hell, neither will I suffer with thy holy one to see corruption. Jewish rule and Jewish law was that the fourth day the body began to stink, to decay. You remember when Jesus went to the tomb of Lazarus? And said, "Open the grave." And the uh, protest was made. Uh, he had been dead already four days, and now he stinketh. Well, what amazing work of the power of God that he even reversed the process of decay! And Lazarus came forth, not a resurrected body, but a restored to life body. That was made known to me the ways of life. That was made me full of joy with and with countenance, men and brethren. Let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David that he is both dead and buried and his sepulchre is with us this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn his, with an oath that the fruit of his loins according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. Christ's throne. Not David's throne, but Christ's throne. He, David, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ that his soul was not left in Hades, neither his place did see corruption. Now, this is what Christ did when He ascended into heaven. He ascended to His throne, and He sits and rules and reigns as King over His kingdom today. There are those who talk about He, he will begin to reign when He comes back to earth uh, after uh, when His second coming. He rules and reigns today. He is the reigning Savior. He is the ruling King. This Jesus, hath God raised up, where we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received the Father' promise, note that please of the Holy Ghost. He has shed forth this which you now see and hear. The manifestation of the Holy Spirit accrediting the church was something visibly seen and audibly heard. This is what Israel expected. Miracles that you could see or you could hear. And God was giving witness unto Israel that the New Testament church which Christ established, it was the house of God. For David is not ascended into heavens, but he saith the Lord... Said unto my right hand, sit thou on my right hand. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make thy footstool. going me start reading. Until thou make thy foes thy footstool. Now here is a very important statement. This, this statement is quoted in Hebrews chapter ten. Also, you'll turn there, please. I just want to point this out to you. <clears throat> Hebrews ten. I'll start reading in verse twelve. And this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. Now, the word footstool is what I want to note. I could take you back and show you in the Old Testament days that the footstool is the place where his throne is, it, it's where the king puts his feet. His throne is up here, his footstool is here. Isaiah says, Heaven is thy throne, and earth is thy footstool. The footstool of the Lord is upon the earth. But I also would show you that the footstool of God is the house of God. Psalms 99, let us worship the... Well, I'll have to start reading it to you. Psalms 99 and verse 5 says, Exalt ye the Lord and worship at His footstool, for He is holy. Verse 9 says, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. Holy hill and footstool are both connected here together. And then you would go to Psalms 139. You have a somewhat similar expression in Psalms 139. I'm sorry, not 139, 132. I'm sorry, 32. Verse 7. We will go into his tabernacles. We will worship at his footstool. And then 138, verse 2. I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness, for thy truth, and for thou hast magnified thy word above. Thy name. Worship God is, in the Old Testament days, worship is directed towards the temple, the tabernacle, which is called the footstool of God. Now, thou make thine enemies thy footstool. You're here as a fulfillment of that promise made to the Son. The Son was promised he would die for to redeem his people from their sins. He was promised this in the everlasting covenant. And as certain and surely as he died, the Father promised that he would draw all of those for whom he died unto him, who were born, though they were born as enemies, Paul Ephesians chapter 2, that we were by nature the enemies of God, and we were born as enemies of God. But what happens, the Holy Spirit of God regenerates us and makes us to be new creatures in Christ, and we become submissive subjects in the kingdom of God, and we are brought to his footstool, footstool the house of God to worship and to praise Him. And the word, sit down, my hand," until I make thine enemies thy footstool, it means to wait with anticipation. What God is doing by the Holy Spirit, the Son is simply waiting in anticipation until it is consummated that the last of God's elect are, re- are regenerated and are brought into submission by the Holy Spirit to Christ. And when that happens, I tell you, the next thing that happen, I think, is boom, then the Lord comes. It's not what happens in Israel. It's not what happens in Moscow. It's not what happens in Washington, D.C. It's what God does in the hearts of His elect people. That's what determines how long time is going to go on. I'll go back to Acts chapter 2 and verse 37. Now, when they heard this, now it's significant, they heard, And the reason they heard was because the Holy Spirit of God had pricked their hearts. When they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts. They didn't hear it just with a physical ear. They heard it with a spiritual ear. The first thing the Holy Spirit must do to an individual, he must regenerate them and give them a spiritual ear that they can hear the truth of God. And they were pricked in their hearts. And they said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brother, what shall we do? That's a good question, because they were guilty of putting Christ to death, and they realized that. What must we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized. No one is qualified to be baptized until, first of all, they've experienced repentance. That's what Peter says here. Again, we are not just nullify the idea of infant baptisms. And every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, and here the word for is used, and here again, the word because of or in view is the preposition, it is the Greek word here, ice, and it can be translated either way depending upon context. Now, just quickly, in Matthew, the 12th chapter, the men of Jonah and the men of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. Well, they didn't... It's the Greek word, ice. They didn't repent in order to obtain the preaching of Jonah. That would be ridiculous. It was because of the effect of Jonah's preaching. The men of Nineveh repented. Greek word, ice, there. Same thing is here. You repent... And you're baptized in view of, because of, the remission of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Everyone that repents is going to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. The teaching that, well, you've got to pray and get the Holy Ghost. The reason why we receive the Holy Ghost is because Christ prayed for us that you would receive the Holy Spirit. It's not because of what we do. It's all of God's grace. And and this is a promise unto you and to your children, not infants. Children, that simply means descendants. That's what the Greek word here means. Unto you and your descendants, and to all that are for all, here's what determines that. As many as the Lord our God shall call. Those who are called by the Holy Spirit, chosen in Christ, this is the promise made to them. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Now, some people take this to mean that this is a way that we, that we can save ourselves. Talking about work salvation. You save yourselves by taking heed the word of God. God has saved me and you here from a lot of illnesses and sicknesses and troubles that other people fall into because you've taken heed the word of God. You're not drug addicts. You hopefully none of you have HIVs and all those other things. Why? Because of the admonition of the word of God, you've been saved from many things that many other people have fallen prey to, and you. Saving, but not only from the physical saving, but from the, from the false doctrines and teachings. All the false doctrines, the Mormons, uh, everything else that's going on in the world, false teachings. How is it that God has been pleased to save us from it? By causing us to give heed to the truth of God's Word. So take heed that you'll save yourself from this ungodly generation. Now note verse 41. Then they that gladly received His Word were immersed. What's the prerequisite for baptism? Glad he received his word. And the same day there were, what's that next word? Add it. Now, if you know anything about math, you've got to have something before you add anything to it. You can't add 10 to 0 and come up with anything but 0. You've got to have something in existence before it can be in- added into it. The church did not begin at Jerusalem. The church was already in existence before, I mean, the church did not begin at Pentecost. The church was already in existence before the day of Pentecost. And we'll see this. Now verse 42, and they, those that were the, the church there, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. I preached a sermon from that text at verse right there, and I say this is the primitive New Testament mode of worship. Here it is, to continue in the apostles' doctrine. Nobody else that we look back to except to Christ and the apostles. They continued in the apostles' doctrine. We need to examine all of our doctrine, all of our practice, about what does the New Testament say. Not but what man says, not any man, including Herb Hatfield. It's what does Christ say and what do the apostles teach. I like the old the London Confession of Faith, 1689, but that's not what I judge my doctrine by. We want to judge our doctrine by what does the Word of God say. Men who wrote the 1689 and learned Confession of Faith, there are some places that I think that they were wrong in. But whether they're right or wrong, the question is, what does the Word of God say? And so that's what we go by. Not by what men write, but what does God write. Fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And they all believed and were together and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all, as every man had need. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, that eat their meat with gladness and singles of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord, and the Greek words here are in the futuristic tense, present and futuristic, so it means, and the Lord was adding to the church daily such as were being saved. What I just said, the church was already in existence, and the Lord was adding them. How were they added? By being regenerated, by being immersed. They were thereby added onto the New Testament church. This second chapter of Acts is such a great chapter, but it has been abused and it has been twisted to teach false doctrines. And all the charismatics, all the Pentecostals, all these people who talk about the second work of grace... And those who talk about baptism in the Holy Spirit, they don't know what they're talking about. Here is the biblical teaching about baptism in the Holy Spirit. It is always a collective assembly. It is always a group of regenerated, scripturally baptized believers. It is always a people that are met together. And there the Holy Spirit of God gives accreditation that this is the house of God. Pentecost at Jerusalem. Samaria, and the house of Cornelius, and that's the last time you ever have any record of it. May God bless his word to our hearts and to our minds.